We are here learning Talmud. So I love to give this brief refresher on what it is we're learning. What is the Talmud? The Talmud is actually two separate works that are combined together. The Talmud is the Mishnah, which were the very, very first rabbinic writings, sort of the first Jewish writings that follow the canonization of the Bible. So it's the Mishnah, and it is the Gemara, which is the second part. It's a series of, of uh, comments on the Mishnah. That's, uh, the Mishnah is largely in Hebrew. The Gemara goes back and forth between Hebrew and Aramaic um, as it sort of unwinds all of its different pieces. The Talmud... As I mentioned, it's the first set of Jewish writings. It's really the beginning of rabbinic Judaism, as we understand it, and it follows, uh, it emerges, the Mishnah in the very beginning of it, be emerges out of the destruction of uh, Israelite life, the great temple, the second temple in Jerusalem. So we're actually going to be looking at one of the earliest, uh, one of the earliest rabbis here this evening, um, who was actually in and around alive, probably contemporary with that destruction of the temple. Um, that was in the year 70 CE. The Mishnah was redacted in the year 220 CE. And it's not entirely clear when the Talmud was redacted finally, when it was closed, canonized, set. Um, theories range anywhere from the year 600 to the year 800. Um, and then in the years after that, there are additional commentaries that are sort of posted in the margins of additional people. Rashi, if anyone has heard of this famous rabbi from France in about the turn of the millennia, about the year 1,100 or so, um, he has commented on the entire Talmud. So he is in every single page, pretty much, of all of the Talmud. The Talmud is the longest written work in the ancient world. It is the longest by about four times, about four times longer than the next closest set, which is some piece of Roman legal codes. The reason it's so long is it preserves all of the disagreements, all of the dissenting opinions, all of the different pieces that go this way and that way and back and forth. Um, the rabbis just sort of go round around in, round and round in their arguments, uh, and sometimes it'll say, here's what the accepted outcome is, here's what the practice is as we have it, yet it retains all of their discussions and sort of serpentine wanderings in all of what they do. Now, uh, there are also, Bert was asking earlier about which Talmud we're looking at. There are two Talmuds. There is the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem, also called the Palestinian Talmud by some scholarship, and there is the Bavli, or Babylonian Talmud. Uh, as a quick refresher of Jewish history, when the first temple was destroyed in 586 BCE by the, uh, by the Babylonians, the Jewish people were sent into, the Israelite people were sent into exile in the east, so all through sort of uh, what is today Iraq and Iran. And so uh, this is where these folks, some of the folks who never returned when the, when the uh, Persians conquered the Babylonians, they conquered them with King Cyrus, allowed them to build the second temple. A lot of the people, a lot of these Jewish Israelite folks stayed. They stayed behind in Babylonia. And so a lot of these uh, cities in modern-day Iraq today, for instance, Fallujah, I think, uh, if you heard about that from the Iraq War, is the site of uh, one of the famous Jewish academies that produced the Babylonian Talmud. Clearly, these are different times now. Now, the two, uh, the two genres that we're working in with Talmud, there are sort of two basic genres of writing. One is legal material, halakha. Um, this is all of the legal arguments. It's the rabbis trying to figure out how to construct a sort of living, breathing religious system with ritual out of Bible. 
So you can see them wrestling with, uh, I always give this example, I'll give it again, with Passover coming up. They, uh, we have this commandment in Exodus to, um, tell, to teach our children the story of Passover and to tell it in every generation. Well, how do you do that? The mechanism that the rabbis came up with to do that is to have a Seder, which we all tend to go to and have every year with the four cups of wine, and they start mapping out what exactly would be the structure of this whole thing. So a lot of it's the halakha, it's the rules about how it is you have Judaism, how it is you take the Bible and the Torah and turn them into a living, breathing uh, religious system and civilization in that way. The other genre of stuff outside of the legal is Agada, Agadata, are the stories, the legends, all of the strange, far-out wanderings, all of their sort of wisdom literature, their interactions with one another that happen in very weird and magical, mystical ways. Um, but a lot of these are real people, in fact. Um, last time we talked about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. His grave is uh, one that you can actually go see in Israel. If any of you are coming on the Israel trip, I'd kind of like to detour there just to see that with some folks. Um, this is another figure where we know where his grave is, where he was buried. It's tough to say if everything that is ascribed to him could have possibly happened, because as you know, these stories are weird. Um, <laughs> but... It's fascinating to think that these probably were real people that had different relationships and different uh, goings-on, and some of them were religious leaders, political leaders, and they were sort of the innovators of um, what became rabbinic Judaism. So I'm going to pass this out. It's double-sided. Yes. Yes. What happened before the temple was destroyed? That's a good question. They had the coin. They had the what? The coin. The coin? Cohen. Cohen. Oh, the Cohen. The Cohenim. Yeah. The, the, uh, the Levi. Yes. And the regular. So the question: What was what happened before the temple was destroyed? The question is: What happened to Passover in that time? What happened to Passover at that time? In that time. That's a good question. It's not entirely clear that before the Mishnah, when they talk about outlining a Seder as having four cups of wine and that being the architecture and the of it. And uh, it's not clear what form a Seder, what, how it is that they told that story. You know, we do know that it was important to the rabbis that they tell the Passover story. Yeah, but that is the rabbi. What happened before? We don't know. There is a lot that we don't know, actually, in terms of what Jewish life was back then. Um, what was in and around the time of the first temple. We have, um, we have effectively nothing from the first temple itself, which sort of makes sense because the first temple was where they then built a second temple. Um, we also don't have a whole, whole lot from an, from an archaeological standpoint, even from the second temple, because, again, you're talking about the holiest site for two major world religions, a third, you know, right around the corner. You can't go digging there and excavating. So that, from that consideration alone, it's really tough to extrapolate a lot of what was going on. But... Uh, a lot of what we do know comes from uh, rabbinic material, from a lot of their writing. We do have bits and pieces of history, um, particularly from surrounding kingdoms and civilizations talking about the Jews. Um, but it's tough to know exactly what Jewish life looked like back then. Um, Nothing was written in that time except the Ten Commandments. The Torah and the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, were written at that time. 
Um, the Hebrew Bible was sort of canonized probably around 300 or so BCE. So that was about the time that they figured out, okay, which books are in and which books are out. Um, Esther is in, Maccabees are out. Just one example. Um, so those were the, that was the, those were basically the text, all of the writing at that point. And even some of the late, uh, Hebrew Bible books, the Apocrypha, um, and some of the material from different groups that were living at that time and sort of loosely connected to Judaism, groups like the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, um, they all had different kinds of writings too that are all genre-wise, they're all like Bible. Um, it's not until uh, around the turn of the millennia that the writing actually changes in tone. It doesn't sound like a narrative story like the Book of Esther written by some um, person who purported to have been part of it, um, it becomes more like a series of commentary. Uh, the rabbis begin identifying who they are and saying who it is that had the different opinions and different ideas, whereas a lot of those biblical materials are opaque in authorship. I know that question. Yes. Uh, when I was going to Seder in New York from the child of the Holocaust, they said they were going to write another Agada. Mm -hmm. Do you know anything about that Agada? That Agada would have five questions. Okay, so a question about Passover Haggadahs. Since we have Passover coming up, why not um, talk about it? There are a lot of different kinds of Haggadot. Um, more than I could name, certainly. Um, written by many different groups of Jews at many different times. Um, adding in their pieces of the story and their commentaries. There are all kinds of interesting progressive Haggadot. There are Haggadot for... Um, Gosh, I saw one that was for prisoners, uh, Jewish prisoners in the United States um, in the judicial system. So tons of kinds of Haggadot. I don't know much about that specific one. Isn't there just like an order of, I think it's 10 or 12 things that have to be at a Seder for it to be so kosher, and the Seder, rest can all be written? So not only, so yes, there are, is a set number of things that you have to go through to make a Seder kosher. The word Seder actually means order. It's about following that order through. Um, and then even beyond the idea of his uh, kashrut of the Seder, whether or not the Seder is halachically or legally um, proper, there are enough Jews like our community here for whom their relationship with Judaism is not first and foremost legal system. And so I bet most of us are not too concerned about the halachic uh, veracity, the halachic fitness of our, uh, of our uh, Seders that we have. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, just, I have a... 1969, I have the Stoner Sagata from Santa Cruz, illustrated by our girl. There you go. So, uh, all kinds of different Haggadot, for sure. A number of years ago, we needed uh, a Haggadah for, for our family, mm -hmm. which at that time had, had young children. And I don't know why I did this, but I gathered together maybe 10 or 15 different Haggadahs mm -hmm. of different styles. And you can get them on the internet and whatever. And based on whatever, I forget, I think it's 10 or 12 things in the order that have got to be there, mm -hmm. took things from all the different Haggadahs. And I, at that time, I saw what you're talking about is they're tremendously different. Yeah. They have different readings in terms of what the themes are, but that's Jews. That's right. So all kinds of different Haggadot. Other questions, taking a step back to the Talmud, <laughs> um, other questions about this work that we're looking at, that we're reading together? Yes. Wait, there was the Mishnah and... and Gemara was the second work, Gemara. and those two together make up the Talmud. And the Gemara is commentary on commentary? Yep. Yeah. Okay. And then we get the rabbis who come after that, that issue commentary on the commentary, okay. 
And then on we the have commentary. Responsa that do commentary on the commentary. That's right. Yeah. Hence the Jewish project. The timing um, through all of this that the, when the Sanhedrin was question so what's what's the sanhedrin when were they active so uh the sanhedrin was essentially the jewish political religious political leadership of that era it was a rabbinic court of 70 uh that was mostly convened in and around uh the the land of israel um it was in it was contemporary with most of uh the mishnah with the Gemara, it gets a little bit more complicated with the destruction of a lot of Jewish life at that time. Um, Sanhedrin is an interesting concept in and of itself. It comes from a Greek word, sindarion. It's actually in the adoption of a foreign idea, having this sort of body of leadership in that way. It's a very different model than, say, the prophets um, in Hebrew Bible. So it's interesting to sort of take note of where it is that the Jews, that the rabbis, that the Israelites were absorbing other pieces and other ideas into their civilization versus sort of seeing themselves in their project as being hermetically sealed uh, to the outside in that way. Sanhedrin's a very interesting piece like that. Um, and I don't know much about it other than in Milton Steinberg's book mm-hmm. that I probably read five times because I one of my favorite books, but mm-hmm. but I sort of lost track of, of the time that it, this was occurring. So we're talking the first centuries CE was the time of the Sanhedrin. Um, Milton Steinberg's book, um, As a Driven Leaf, is a wonderful book of fiction about these characters in this era. We talked about Elisha ben Avuya some months back, the Acher, as he's known to the other, um, these sort of apostate par excellence uh, features in that book. So uh, any other questions about what it is we're reading before we dive into it? Okay, so I want to do something a little bit unusual today. I would actually like to have a conversation before we even get this text in front of us. We'll get to it, and we'll unload it, and we'll see what it thinks about it. But I'd like to talk for a couple of minutes about prayer, actually. We're going to see a text that that delves deeply into what is prayer, what does prayer do, what does it mean, and are there wrong ways to pray? Um, but I'd love to toss this out to the floor at this point. What does prayer mean to you? And I can promise you there aren't wrong answers. Whether or not it's consistent, your idea of prayer, with what the rabbis thought 2,000 years ago, um, there has been, since 2,000 years, of rabbinic Judaism, all kinds of folks coming up with different ideas. Uh, so you might have Maimonides disagreeing vehemently with the early Talmudic rabbis who would disagree with the Kabbalists. So there's no one right answer. But I do want to open this up to say, what does prayer mean to you? Yeah. Um, well, we, uh, we pray every night and say the Shema every night okay. with our child. And it's to um, praise you know, all the... Rabbis and cantors and nurses and doctors, and you know, mm-hmm. so that's how that prayer goes. Mm-hmm. And then I think the Shema is to pay homage, really. I mean, in our family, for mm-hmm. people uh, to uh, to God, mm-hmm. to Jewish life, and to our family, and kind of what we do at Shabbat, mm-hmm. but every night, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, we have a nine-year-old. Yeah, I'm not sure, you know, you know, we didn't do that before we had a kid. Yeah, but. Um, yeah, so I mean, really, I think it's a pay homage to mm-hmm. what we have and be thankful. 
So this aspect of gratitude, of acknowledgement, is crucial. Um, a couple of other things I would sort of lift up from what you said. There's a regularity to it. There's, it. It gives structure to one's time in a certain way. If you frame the beginning and ending of your day with Shema, as we get in the Via Hafta, that it's what you do when you uh, lie down and when you rise up, um, it gives a certain kind of structure to your time. Uh, it lends a certain kind of consciousness, it sounds like. You said you started doing this uh, with your nine-year-old, but it's not something you did on your own. So in that way, it sounds like it's uh, instructive in a certain sense, like you're imparting something to your child. If that sounds right. That's pretty accurate. So, Susan, did you want to? Well, I think I'm saying the same thing. I don't think I consciously prayed except in temple until mm-hmm. I had breast cancer and the treatments for it. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I started realizing that what was sustaining me was the ocean, but it wasn't really the ocean. It was the ocean as it reflected God. And I looked up the prayer for the blessing on the ocean. So going to treatments, going and coming from treatments, I drove by the Pacific, mm-hmm. and I thought, and it was it was acknowledging every day that God was there and God was great, and probably had no idea I existed, but that didn't matter because hmm. God existed for me at that point in time. So and having that has continued to be my practice. That's beautiful. Um, I want to suggest, actually, that why don't we just go around and people can choose to speak or not, that one can just sort of make our way around the room this way. Um, I love this idea of prayer um, as something that structures not just sort of your time, but also what it is you see during your day and your experiences and sort of where you are in your life's journey in that way. That's another beautiful vision of it. Yeah. I see it as something that evolves. Let me give an example. Excellent. I think there's prayer for mm-hmm. and prayer to. There's mm. two of the examples. Mm-hmm. Now, they're both prayers, right? But they're distinctly different. Mm-hmm. For instance, we say we pray for peace. Yeah. We pray to God. Mm-hmm. There's still prayers, and although those are only two examples, mm-hmm. I see it as as something that can be. Outward or inward, mm-hmm. and it doesn't make any difference. It's still a prayer. I love that. This question of prayer to or prayer for um, is a great way to think about what is going on in that moment of prayer. I might even add a third axis, which is prayer over. Um, what, prayer about. Yeah, prayer about, for sure. Um, we could probably, yeah, we could generate a number of these axes. Um, but this prayer over, I think about the kind of prayers we say over the wine, over the challah, um, over the Shabbat candles. I think about when we talked about Shimon Bar Yochai and people praying at his grave site. Um, they're praying over his grave upon his merits to God. It's a very interesting thing about what and who is involved in the moment of prayer, too. Thank you. Um, I think of prayer in a, in a couple of different ways, not as opposite kind of thing that Bob mentioned, but mm-hmm. um, prayer me is thinking about or um, expressing the awe of the of uh, what's greater than myself or greater than all of us that mm-hmm. has created where we are and how we live in that and how it may or may not affect us or mm-hmm. along the earth. And also 
prayer within as well, the same way, um, again, mm -hmm. the awe of being. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate your bringing that word in, awe, um, that that is one of these sort of experiential elements of prayer and the way in which it connects and resonates with us beyond being, uh, it sounded like you spoke about it in ways that it sounded like this constitutive thing, like it makes up the fabric of reality in many ways and connects us to that. It's a beautiful vision of it. Um, yeah. Okay. I was going to say, you don't know what you feel like they have to say anything, but... I think of prayer as your new as a bifold type thing. Mm-hmm. Asking for assistance mm. and expressing gratitude. Excellent. So another, uh, again, that gratitude, that acknowledgement piece, and as well as that binary piece, the supplication, the request, the asking. Um, so it's both a consciousness of what you have and also an awareness of what you may need. Um, that's very nice. Uh, go ahead, Grant. The prayer... Uh forces us to put into words mm -hmm. uh, thoughts about, <clears throat> about life and mm -hmm. God and gratitude and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, it also, I, I believe that it, it puts us in touch with our roots mm -hmm. uh, in that prayer have, have been, the, the same prayers have been said generations. And, mm. and by repeating them, it, it, it connects us to our history. Wonderful. It is something that, uh, look, Shema, we talked about Shema a minute ago. That's one of the earliest prayers that we understand, this idea of composing prayer and prayer being essentially a replacement for the sacrificial system, prayer being the means by which we would have a relationship with God. That's one of the earliest pieces we've ever found. We found fragments of that, of, the, of clearly somebody, probably the sort of nascent rabbinic movement, um, taking those pieces of biblical verse from different places, because they don't all run together in the Torah, the Shema and its paragraphs, somehow extracting those from different places in Torah and writing them all down together and weaving together some kind of expression as prayer. That's one of the most ancient ones, the Shema. And so this idea that we show up here, we come to Friday night, we come to Saturday morning, or we say Shema at night, that's something that links us back to, I don't know, those fragments that they found that date back to the year 200-some. Um, it's a really incredible thing to be linked to. Yeah. I, I want to say something about the Shema. I was at one of the conference of the child survivor, mm -hmm. and a man was talking. Mm -hmm. He's a survivor, too, and he was telling that uh, after the Holocaust mm -hmm. from America, they went to different convent in Europe to find out about the Jewish children that were left there. Mm -hmm. They went to this convent and they said, we don't have any Jewish children here. <laughs> we never had any Jewish children. And uh, he said, can I, can I be with the uh, children in the classroom for 10 minutes alone? Mm -hmm. And he went in the room and he started to say the Shema. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, children, Went in. Mm -hmm. So they had denied that they had any Jewish children, mm -hmm. but they could not deny their root, talking about the connection. The way it connects you. It's a beautiful story talking about, you know, looking for Jewish so children. Every time I said, yeah. I have to think about that story. Yeah. Okay. For me, 
prayer, there are two things. Gratitude mm-hmm. and plea. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Returning to those themes of the acknowledgement, the gratitude, as well as the supplication, the request. Um, yes. 100%. I love that story of Shema as something that is constitutive. It creates Jewish peoplehood in a way. Um, if any of you have the experience of going to other countries and not speaking the language, but going into a synagogue and all the prayers are the same, that's a pretty remarkable thing. Um, I have in my office from my recent experience in Germany, in Berlin, uh, one of the Sidorim, they uh, let me... They gave me one of these sidorim, I mentioned it was a rabbi, uh, and it has all of these prayers in transliteration, so written in German, as a German would use, you know, these um, Latin characters, um, but then you say it and it sounds exactly the same, as bizarre as it looks in the book. Um, it's an incredible thing. If any of you want, I'll show you this German sidor, but, um, you know, this the Shema, all of these prayers were the same thing that linked us together. Go ahead, Bert. It's hard to add what everybody said. Yeah, ditto. <laughs> ditto. Uh, Maybe coming from a different direction. I think there's a number of pieces. One piece, to me, prayer is turning the mind and turning ourselves into the present or connecting with the presence of that which is beyond us. Okay. Which we call God. Okay. So there's a connective aspect to it of reaching out. There's something transcendent about it. Transcendent of, in, in more traditional religious language, standing in the presence of the Holy One. Okay. Another piece to it for me comes from the Hebrew word for prayer, hipalel, which is reflexive. Yes. In that it is saying prayer does something to us. Mm-hmm. So it's directed out and also directed in. And from that standpoint, and I think someone made this point as well, Prayer is an expression of what we value and what we stand for. Mm-hmm. That by praying for peace, for example, or mm-hmm. praying for health or praying for whatever we pray for, mm-hmm. that that is a statement of who we are and what our values are. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be very instructive. From that standpoint, I've heard people say, you say, who hears prayer, that it's just important, as important for us to hear our prayer mm. as for God to hear our prayer. The third piece, which I think was expressed here by various people, and and you said as well, is the pouring out of the heart, Mm. is the taking of a moment to be alone with the ultimate, Mm -hmm. where one is completely seen and one can feel completely honest, Mm -hmm. and opening the heart and our wants and desires and whatever in a way that we never can with any human being on this earth. Mm-hmm. So, to me, it's all that stuff. Okay, so you and brought in... the regular a, ones and tradition and what everybody's saying. So you brought in a few Jewish pieces, actually, that I want to speak to because they come out of slightly different mm-hmm. moments in Jewish consciousness. One, this piece about praying, pouring your heart into it is a very Hasidic <laughs> notion. Um, the, I believe it was uh, Rabbi Nachman in the Hasidic movement, this sort of popularizing of Kabbalah that sort of happened at the end of, um, sort of in the Middle Ages in Europe. Um, he talked about, he told a story in which he talked about uh, essentially God being in this palace with many, many rooms, and different keys open different doors. But the key that opens all of the rooms, the master key, is the broken heart. That if you pray with a broken heart, that opens all of the doors and all of the gates to holiness. Um, 
Again, this is Rabbi Nachman's understanding. So this idea of pouring your heart into it in this incredibly intimate devotional sort of sense is a very Hasidic thing. Um, There's also a section in the daily prayers. Right. After the Amidah, which is in the plural, okay, okay. mostly in the plural, and before the end of the service, mm-hmm. Tachanun, yeah. which is, I mean, in traditional language, this kind of daily pouring out and connecting and... and if you all remember the story of the oven of Achnai, this story in which um, at the end of it, Rabban Gamliel is killed by the outpouring of prayer by um, <laughs> Rabbi Eliezer, that was the Tachanun. That was this prayer that is supposed to be so powerful and intense that um, the source of his anguish actually killed one of the other rabbis. So that is totally part of it. The last thing I wanted to say before we move on, um, you, what you spoke about reminded me a little bit of Maimonidean ideas of prayer, Rambam, Maimonides. Um, probably I'll go out on a limb and say the smartest Jew that ever lived um, from about the year 1100 or so you know same time as Rashi approximately he lived in Egypt in uh, Alexandria and he was this advisor to um, the ruler there had a wonderful relationship with him but he talked about prayer he said that back in pagan times people made animal sacrifices it wasn't really what God wanted but God doesn't want to disturb you with what God actually wants with prayer. God wants prayer to be comfortable. So this is why the early Israelites made sacrifices, because it was comfortable. Then we evolved to prayer. So we pray. Um, that's a little closer to what God really wants of us. Um, it's not bad, it, but it's, uh, it's what's comfortable to Jews in this idiomatic sense. He then spoke of some kind of future time in which we would be able to sit and contemplate uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Blessed Holy One, and the divine forms, and what is the nature of divinity in reality, and to have a perfect contemplation of, of holiness, he thinks, is probably what God wants. Um, I knew a number of people who thought that sounds awfully lot like certain kinds of meditation and meditative practices we have today. Um, so there are a lot of different ways to drosh that, but it's interesting that he sort of sees prayer in more of a meditative, reflective, contemplative, in that kind of idiom rather than um, other kinds. So this is where I say that he might disagree with some of the early rabbis. Um, go ahead, Robert, if you want to. Well, it's hard to add, add to what you and Bert just said because you, you expressed some of the thoughts. Take one back. More on my mind. Uh, to, to me, I, I see prayer, first of all, as, as a, probably the only opportunity for the day to step back from the busyness and mayhem and whatever is mm. going on in one's life and be really thoughtful, mm-hmm. both inward looking introspectively, mm-hmm. which I think you both brought up, and sure. outward looking in a, uh, in a, otherworldly sense about God, civilization, and mm-hmm. bigger issues than, than we spend most of our day thinking about. So I love that that deals with both um, consciousness and awareness and sort of your own self-perception, but it's also prayer as respite, um, prayer as refuge in a way. Um, so many of the words that we use, particularly in English, actually are connected to that idea of prayer. Sanctuary, 
that's the place where we pray. Chapel um, is another one, comes from cape and being covered and being protected in a certain way. So this idea that with prayer comes refuge, comes a certain kind of protection, um, it's very baked into a lot of the ways we talk about prayer, in fact. I think that's great to hold. Nathan, you, uh, you want to share anything else? Yes. Um, I'm going to try to bring up a new idea. Yeah. Go for it. But, um, I kind of see prayer as more of like a deal, where the Jewish people are big deal makers with God. <laughs> it's transactional. <laughs> and we, uh, originally, we sacrificed to God, and we said, you know, you can have this cow in exchange. Can you help me have my life be prosperous? Mm-hmm. Sacrifice. And so we praise God. We say, you're incredible. this <laughs> Excellent. I'm glad you said that. That's another one of the sort of categories I wanted to bring up, which is a very traditional rabbinic understanding, that we have this sort of back and forth with God. It's all a negotiation. It's like all of these arguments that we have in Talmud. Prayer is just like that, that it's uh, all about, you know, you do this for me, and then I'll do this for you, and then this will work out this way, this will work that way. I mean, it says in the Shema, if you keep all of my commandments and do these things, the rains will fall at the proper time, and the people will be healthy and happy and whatnot. So that's that really is the rabbinic idea of it. Um, and I think that comes out of this idea that having a certain kind of relationship with God can affect your society, your civilization. There's a certain kind of ownership of the fragility of our lives and journeys. And so in an attempt to sort of hold that fragility, um, we make these deals. We make these deals with God in terms of hoping for the best for ourselves, for our lives, for our families. Sometimes the transaction works out. A lot of times it doesn't work out. Um, but that, that's a I real think. puzzling thing. Yes. Because our experience, as you say, is we don't get everything we pray for. Yeah. And that uh, sometimes, uh, I think it says in Perkei Avot, mm-hmm. you know, we don't understand, nobody can understand the peace of the wicked or mm-hmm. the suffering of the righteous. Right. And that is our experience is that good deeds are not always rewarded. Yep. And that three-year-old kids get cancer. That's right. Um, and, and there's and one of the problems with looking at it from a, we, we had this other discussion about transactionally, yeah. Yeah. is because while you can make an argument that if you do good things, good things will come to you from God, mm-hmm. the problem then becomes when people look at it the other way, and they say, well, if somebody had a very bad thing happen to them, they must have done something wrong. Right. That... Here is a person, whatever it was. I mean, there was, mm-hmm. there was an American preacher a number of years ago that said the hurricanes came to the Carolinas because God was punishing for whatever God was Jerry Falwell saying, them. yeah, whatever, Katrina whatever, was yeah. punishing gay people, right. Right, right. So the, the transactional thing, it's a great image mm-hmm. that we like to have. Mm-hmm. Where we're all, everybody's always trying to make a deal with God. Mm-hmm. But our experience in life doesn't always confirm that. And that creates... This is a conversation, as I mentioned to to Bert, this is a conversation I often have once a year around Yom Kippur with somebody who says, uh, all of our liturgy says who will die by fire, who die by drowning, who by strangulation, by wild beast, all of that. Um, I had a relative who was stricken with cancer or died in an accident or what. Is this material all saying that this person deserved that? Um, Right. I tend to talk about with that liturgy, I tend to say sort of what I said a moment ago, that this is the rabbis, and many of uh, much of our Yom Kippur liturgy was written in the medieval era, when they were experiencing the kind of violence and suffering of the Crusades. So these were people who were often 
They're trying to make sense and reflect on and hold the fragility of their lives and the lives of their family and their friends, of their communities. Um, and that's something that we struggle to hold as well in our lives today, the fragility that people die in car accidents, people get are stricken with all kinds of illnesses that uh, it's difficult to sort of hold and make construct a theology around that. But I think that if we can use some of that liturgy to reflect and to hold that fragility, then I think that liturgy and those prayers might be doing something for us. Yeah. When I was very young, I heard something that I've never forgotten. Mm -hmm. And it was relating to prayer. Mm -hmm. It was a simple phrase. It said, God answers all prayers. Sometimes the answer is all. <laughs> right. God answers all prayers. Sometimes the answer is no. Um, a great way to sort of think about this and a good segue into our piece here. So I want to invite all of you to break into our traditional Chavruta study, learn with one or two other people, read through it, just take a pass at part one, so the first side of it. I don't think we're going to do... Go through the whole page? Yeah, go through that whole page. This one, it's a little longer than many of them, but this one I think is more straightforward than many of them. Famous last words, but this one is not as convoluted as many of the ones we have seen. I am going to sort of hover and help out with other chevrutot, so ready, set, go. Have folks had a chance to make it through the text, at least one pass? Yeah? Okay. So, did y'all make it through? You made it through? Okay, great. So... In that case, I would love to reconvene our group, gather back together out of our chavrutot, and we'll start from the beginning. We'll do a close reading together, um, and we'll stop along the way to answer questions, to talk about sort of what comes up and other pieces here, and we'll see where this takes us. First, I'm curious, was this one easier than most of the stories we've looked at? Yes, until the last paragraph. Okay. (laughs) Until the big finish. All right. So... Who wants to uh, volunteer to read about our friend Choni Hama'agel? It once happened that most of the month of Adar had gone, and yet no rain had fallen. That would be about this time. That would be about this time, yeah. The people sent a message to Choni Hama'agel, pray for rain to fall. He prayed, and no rain fell. So he drew a circle and stood in it like the prophet Habakkuk, who said, I will stand my watch and station myself upon the tower. He drew a circle and stood inside it and exclaimed, Master of the universe, your children have turned to me because they believe that I am a member of your household. I swear by your great name that I will not move from this spot until you have mercy upon your children. Great. Questions? All I could think of was a kid saying, I'm going to hold my breath (laughs) until you give me what I want. A great image. The kids say, I'm going to hold my breath until I get what I want. Um, Habakkuk was one of the minor prophets. So he's in the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's a short book. Um, but yeah, he talks about sort of stationing himself upon the tower for his prophecy. Um, yeah. Did you have a... bothered by your household. What does your household mean? That he is a member, but the children are not. Okay. Is he saying that he is a member of this divine household, whatever that is, but that the rest of the people of Israel are not. No, he says the people believe. People believe yes, he says that the they've people. asked me because they think I'm like, I've got a direct line. Mm-hmm. God's house? Hmm? I don't know why. God's house? He, he just separated that way. It's an the interesting big, question. Um, go ahead, Bert. I keep on going back to the big issue here. Yeah. 
is, is God omnipotent? Mm. Because if God is omnipotent and has infinite power mm-hmm. and can do anything God wants, how could something that man does change what God would have done otherwise? How can man force God to do something if God is all-powerful? So this presents two issues. So either you say, well, God knew that the person was going to ask to do this, Mm -hmm. and God foresaw everything, so really... Or come up with the idea, and I've heard this, I've heard various rabbis say this, that the idea that God is all-powerful really is a mid, uh, uh, um, uh, an idea from the Middle Ages and not part of the real, very early Judaism that saw God as can do a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. but that can be influenced. Yeah, a response here? In this prayer, he asks for mercy. But still. He does not ask for rain. He asks for mercy. And so... Uh, it, it is a benevolent God. He has children. Mm-hmm. I, like I give the example, you know, a father is good to his children, mm-hmm. and here the children are are crying. So as a father, he should have a heart. Mm-hmm. He should give. Well, he can ask it, but the issue is, it's like Abraham uh, arguing with God over Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? Can any prayer that I do? Change. I mean, in this imagery, change what God is going to do. So, they clearly believe that that could. So happen. this is another vision of prayer, which nobody really spoke to, but I'll toss it out there on the floor. This idea that your prayers can change God is a profoundly—it's uh, a kabbalistic idea, actually. Their idea is that there are all of these different aspects: um, the spherot, the divine emanations, as they're understood to be these different sort of characteristics of God and that through by means of mitzvot by means of prayer by means of how we act with one another in this world it brings the different aspects of divinity into different kinds of alignments such that God's presence is made uh, more manifest and the divine flow of blessing of uh, divine I don't know how to translate shefa the divine overflow is more present in this world or if we screw it up um, then these elements of divinity are misaligned that we experience less of this divinity the big one of the big examples two of these spherot two of these emanations are chesed and gvura chesed being uh, it's often translated as loving kindness gvura also called dean is about uh, justice severity the law um, the Kabbalists understand that these two aspects of God's divinity have to be in balance with one another, that if either one of them is too um, dominant or prominent, then what we experience in this world is cataclysmic in many ways. So they understand that they are partners with all of uh, with the divine in bringing about a greater alignment of God's unity and divinity and alignment of the spherot. If that sounds totally bizarre, let me put it like this. We could have an entire class on uh, even this early Lurianic Kabbalah and this system of the divine eminences. I'd be happy to talk more about that at some point. But um, suffice it to say, the Kabbalists understand that what we do impacts God. Um, yeah, go ahead. So if when we pray, like mm-hmm. in this case, mm-hmm. and... It changes the course of action. Mm-hmm. That makes us pretty powerful. 
Yes, it does. And um, so maybe when we pray, God isn't changing his action, but we're putting the energy out there and thoughts are real, energy is real. Mm-hmm. Things happen. I heard a Chabad rabbi that described what you were talking about in that way as saying, we know what all the different laws and rules and all the halakha and whatever, and this is somebody who is with Chabad, so again, their idea of Jewish law and what it means is different than I might imagine. But he said, you know, the question is just how much you want to align yourself with all of these halachot, with all of these different pieces, because the way you align yourself with it will change you, will bring different kinds of energy and divine presence in your life. It's not that God is going to come down and slap you for doing it wrong. It's that, you know, how is it that the question to him was, how can you bring yourself into greater alignment with with all of those pieces? That's a slightly different, it's a slight variation on that Kabbalistic idea that prayer is actually changing or realigning um, God's uh, Godhood, as it were. But this is about the natural world. This okay. is trying to get the natural world to, I mean, you're praying for rain is not like kind of saying, may I have the strength to survive this illness. One is basically asking something to change. Interesting, I've heard uh, Rabbi Brad Artson mm-hmm. talk about this, that there was a period in history mm-hmm. when you could not explain how the world worked morally and physically without going into these kinds of stories. Right. Today, we have science, psychology, biology, physiology, meteorology, we have all these mm-hmm. things, and you can explain all of these natural phenomenon without even bringing any of this kind of stuff into it. So I think that we have to, to me at least, we have to understand this is from a different time when mm-hmm. they didn't have meteorology, they didn't know what caused rain. Right. And I think that they also would not necessarily draw too firm a distinction between prayer relating to the natural world versus supplicatory prayer for or uh, acknowledgement and that kind of gratitude in a really personal sort of sense. Like they I think they see these in, in the physical as, world. They saw morality in history, and we tend to see it's a little complicated because <laughs> they weren't doing history in the way that right. would make sense to us in terms of a temporal. So, um, so you take a step. Yeah, go ahead. But also, I mean, but, but they're not praying for rain. They're saying, it's by proxy, they're saying, you only, you pray for rain. But, but he's praying but, for rain. <laughs> yes, but, but, there's, but there's, that's a step removed than right. me praying for rain. Now, I do want to... That would be me going to Nick and saying, well, Nick, maybe you could talk to Amy and have her pray for rain and... I mean, there's this proxiness in it mm-hmm. as far as the people are. This isn't, they're not praying. So, they're asking him to pray. So in this story, that's very much the case. Generally speaking, they probably were involved with prayer. This whole Masechet, if you look at the bottom, it says Masechet Ta'anit, tractate is the English word, Ta'anit. Ta'anit, as a piece of the Talmud, is particularly concerned with rains and fasting. And when you declare a public fast because something has gone wrong in the society or with the natural world or what have you, like that's a lot of what's going on in that conversation. And so, yes, there's the piece of the leadership sort of driving it. And there, it, it's sort of a question about to what extent do the people participate in it. Again, I, I think I've said this before to this group, it's also important to keep in mind that the Talmud was probably a pretty 
elitist work in its own time. There's a question about uh, to what extent is this for regular people or is this just for the rabbis in their figurative ivory tower, so to speak, or within their hand-drawn circle, as the case may be. So another interesting piece to hold. Nathan, did you want to toss something in? I was going to go back to the idea of humans being powerful so mm-hmm. be able to change that. So if, that, and if uh, these people are asking this other guy pray for them, does that mean that some people are more powerful than them? The rabbis would tell you yes. And the rabbis would tell you the people with the stronger connections are the rabbis. <laughs> Hang on, so we'll get there. I want to I wanna go through a close reading before we get to that, that piece, because that's going to be a really important piece to look at. Yeah, Linda. Um, I mean, I, I'm envisioning all of this as these group of people, the rabbis and their educated people. All praying for whatever it is, and they, as a group, really become powerful. Mm-hmm. They then form an opinion, and if they discuss it or whatever it is, they form an opinion that has an effect on what happens next, on, on how the group lives, on how what yep. they do, and so forth. Something that hadn't happened before that. Mm-hmm. So the power of the people. Is also as important as uh, you know what they think is going on out there. So I think I think it was a few weeks ago. Somebody asked, "Why do we? Why learn these stories? What's the significance of them?" And I think you've spoken to why it is that we see playing out in them how it is that they want to organize Jewish community, society, how much power they think should be in the hands of the elites, of themselves, what that relationship is with God, and to what extent uh, is this sort of a democratizing element within Judaism that takes a step away from the king and the prophets having all the power within uh, Jewish peoplehood. These stories are the means by which they go through negotiating their own values and understanding their world and what it is that they're trying to create in this whole Act of innovating rabbinic Judaism. So here, I think I think you're absolutely right to pick up on that dynamic of the power. Like how much power is held by God, by the people, by the rabbis, and maybe by Choni Hamaagel as his own entity here. And watching those uh, dynamics, I think, is a great way to sort of unpack and look at the dynamics going on here. It talks about power of community and the power mm-hmm. of grassroots. Yep. People yeah. Um, not to in any way, you know, it's not religious in any way, but <laughs> Go for remember it. a notion of self-fulfilling prophecy? Like, we're all dancing around this, a, a, a little with prayer and everything, but, but again, not to, you know, but was there at that time, like, any, like, power of that thought or self-fulfilling? No. So this is an interesting moment. Um, Choni Hama'agel is one of the early, like I said, the early sort of Talmudic Mishnaic, really, from the Mishnah, the early part of it, figures. He was probably alive in and around the year 70 or so. So what else is going on in the year 70? Well, the destructions, cataclysm, uh, the leveling of entire societies by that Roman military juggernaut. And what that produced amongst people was all manner of... could call it uh, extreme sorts of writings and reactions and responses. Um, the Aseans have some kind of um, apocalyptic literature that talks about the epic war of the suns of light and darkness. We see um, 
in early Christianity, this gets refracted through, say, the book of Revelations with a lot of the apocalyptic and messianic and far-out themes that emerge with that. Um, a lot of the groups at this time were trying to sort of make sense of this. So the role of the prophet and sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways during this time fit into those upheavals, is what I would say from a historical standpoint. More broadly, in terms of uh, prophecy as an endeavor, there's a funny little contradiction in that. How do you know a false prophet? Well, their prophecy didn't come true. But how do you know it's not going to come true? So how do you ever know that somebody is a false prophet? <laughs> you get into this interesting contradiction in terms with a lot of that. Um, and then isn't there the other piece that just because the prophecy came true, that doesn't mean it's a true prophet? That's true, too. Um, and then the piece that can a true prophet then happen to give false prophecies? Can you miss on one of your prophecies? These are all things the rabbis wonder about. But they do think they see prophecy as something that it took place in a different era. Um, even in later Hebrew Bible, um, they think that prophecy is something from the Torah. Um, in the book of Samuel, for instance, where we get a really interesting sort of vision of some of the first prayer, um, that, be that book begins by opening and saying, this took place in the days when prophecy was rare. Like, they just have this idea in this book, and this book is named after the prophet Samuel, that this is a time at which that wasn't really going on as much. The rabbis, they are even further distant from it, and they, they think it's a strange thing. They think, actually, that a dream, they say famously in Talmud, is one-sixtieth of a prophecy. So they think that it's something that might you know, come into people here and there, glimmers and hints and whatever of what's beyond, but by and large, they're not dealing in prophecy. Um, they use that number a lot, actually, in the Talmud to talk about a tiny little piece of something. The other example that comes to mind about a 60th is they say if you drop a drop of milk in a meat stew, but it's less than 1 60th of the total stew, okay. still kosher. Oh. <laughs> this is Talmud, again, and medieval rabbis made things more strict, but again, it's this idea that it's a tiny fraction, a little glimmer of whatever the thing is. I want to know when this only Hama. Hama Yeah. Was he a prophet? What, what was he? We, and Abai, what was he? So he, he, we they see said him. Sent to him, but uh, they don't specify. We why see him. We see him as being rabbinic in nature. He's in the archetype of the rabbis. You see that they talk to him and refer to him as master. Um, he's genre-wise, he's sort of part of that whole the very early rabbinic enterprise. Later on, we see Shimon ben Shetach. He was another one of these sort of archetype early rabbinic figures without being uh, nailed down as the rabbi this. But he's sort of seen in that same genre. Um, looking lay leader? At, ooh, I don't think I would say lay leader. I mean, the, the sort of interesting thing is that these rabbinic leaders were both political, cultural, and religious leaders at the time of many of the rabbi? people. <laughs> Lieutenant rabbi, very good. Assistant rabbi. Um, very good, Bert. No, uh, just saying. Hasbe Khalila, that I, you know. Bert wants the job. <laughs> he wants the job. Lahav <laughs> deal, that I compare my station here at our humble neighborhood shul to Choni Hamaagel and his um, zuchut, his uh, rabbinic gravity. Go ahead, Bob. In your footnote. Yeah. Says that Honey's the circle maker. That's what Ma'agel means, literally. Now, if you look at it historically, mm -hmm. 
drawing of circles has a lot of significance. Yes, it does. It has to do with the Jewish religion, particularly. It goes back uh, various circles. And, yes. And we, we still talk about them, uh, the circle of life, whatever it is. It's got nothing to do with Judaism per se. These were mystics. They went back. They used circles for different kinds of things. And it's not just uh, a circumstance uh, that's not recognized where they call him the circle maker. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that into the conversation, that the idea of drawing a perfect circle and using it for some kind of mystical purpose, um, that's a really ancient idea, and it transcends just Judaism and Jewish tradition. Um, yeah, there aren't that many... There aren't that many Jews that use shapes in this way, uh, in this sense. You get later on, a good, you know, 800, 600 to 1,000 years later, in and around some of the Kabbalists, you see the use of individual Hebrew letters and amulets and uh, special pieces of protection. Um, there, was, there were communities that would bury, that might bury a couple of letters underneath the opening to a house to confer upon it divine protection. But what he's doing here with this circle stuff is pretty atypical within the rabbinic enterprise. This is a weird thing that we are seeing. Um, I'll also put out there, and this is not nearly as not to, you know, poke a hole in that balloon, but uh, there's some scholarship that thinks that Ma'agel referred to him being a roofer. Being a what? A roofer. That Choni oh. was a roofer. A roofer? Yeah, and that that's what Ma'agel referred to. Um, that's a very different vision of Choni, the circle maker, the one who brings circles to affect God and spirits and affect the natural world in this way. Way different than Choni, the roofer. But, again, one other idea of what that could possibly be about. Um, do we have other pieces here, or do we want to continue on in the story? All right, who wants to take the uh, second paragraph? The first few drops of rain began to fall, and Honey's disciples said to him, We are asking you to save us from death, but we believe that this rain came down merely to release you from our oath. Your oath. Your oath, excuse me. At this he explained, It's not for this that I pray, but for rain to fill systems, ditches, and Okay. Questions about this second paragraph. Choni says he swears he's not going to get out of his circle until God makes it rain. And so then it spits a little bit. It drizzles. And so they said, what? Come on. This is just so you can get out of that you promised you weren't going to do this. Um, but this doesn't actually solve our drought. It's that same bitchiness we see all the time. <laughs> like, like, I don't want to... The same bitchiness we see through the Torah. I love it. Uh, I think about that uh, that sort of perfect moment of that when Moses is at the shore of the sea, before he parts the seas, before that whole thing, he's taken them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and the ten plagues and all the wonders. And the people said, what? You brought us to the edge of the ocean to die because there weren't enough graves in Egypt. Um, the, just, it's so whiny. <laughs> it's also the beginning of Jewish humor. It is the beginning of Jewish humor. Yeah, Bob. It is traditional. I mean, we, and we've heard the story about, you know, the grandmother walking with her little uh, grandson and, and walking along the beach and the, and the huge wave comes and takes him out to sea. And, <laughs> and, and she's bereft. And then the, all of a sudden the wave comes back and there's the little boy. <laughs> and she's 
think you'd be joyous. She said he had a cap. <laughs> and, and this is this is yeah. And it goes through the entire drawer. Yeah, way. totally. Keep looking for the cap. <laughs> Absolutely, a hundred percent. It is sort of that attitude, and that really. It's an interesting, I mean, I think about, Nathan, what you were talking about, the transactional nature of it. Even if we don't view prayer as a straight-up transaction in that way, it is a back and forth. It is a conversation with God in that way. It is this give and take, this push and pull. Um, I think that, you know, we think about the rabbinic discourse, this chavruta study, uh, this model of the rabbis arguing with each other, and that Talmudic model. They, they talk about chavruta study as it should be like swords sharpening swords. Like, that's the model that they use for what their relationships should be. And, yeah, they understand the way that they connect with God is kind of like that, too. There is a push and pull and back and forth and all of that. That they admire these people like Abraham who went and argued with God. So, yeah. I mean, it seemed interesting to me that instead of Connie saying, oh, goodness sake, just, you know, I bring you rain and you're still bitching, he bitches at God. He bitches at God and says, I didn't pray for a few drops. I prayed for the cappuccino. Absolutely. So let's see what happens after he goes and complains to God. Who wants to pick it up for us? The rain then stormed with great force, every drop being as big as the opening of a barrel. And the sages estimated that no one drop was less than the size of a log. His disciples then said to him, Master, we look to you to save us from death. We believe that this rain comes down to destroy the world. At this he exclaimed, It is not for this that I pray, but for rain of benevolence and blessing. Rain then fell in the normal way until the Israelites in Jerusalem were forced to ascend to the Temple Mount for shelter because of the rising water. His disciples then said to him, Master, in the same way as you have prayed for rain to fall, pray for the rain to cease. Okay. Questions, thoughts, observations about this thing. Be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you pray for. That is a rabbinic part of the conversation. Uh, What you should and should not pray for. And they actually have a category called tefillat shav, tefillah is prayer. Shav, I would say, what's that? Enough. Um, Not quite. It's like, uh, it's almost like prayer in vain, but it's a little bit more, there's value judgment attached to it. There's real negative connotation. It's, it's almost like inappropriate prayer. One of the examples they give of that is um, if you hear um, sirens or like an emergency vehicle, something like that, you should not pray, gosh, I hope it's not going to my home. That that is an inappropriate prayer. You're essentially then praying that it goes to someone else's home in that way. Um, so there's a whole long listing and set of categories of prayer that is both in vain but also not appropriate. It's the wrong thing to pray for in that sense. So it's interesting to think about what kind of line is he treading in terms of this and in terms of pray, you know, be careful what you pray for because it might come true. Other questions before we continue? <laughs> Another so, great truism. Well, does, doesn't this go back to that story in Exodus when uh, the uh, Israelites said, you know, we don't have enough meat? Mm-hmm. And then God says, well, you want more quails? Yeah. Here's more quails. Yeah. <laughs> have a quail. Stuck in teeth. And, yeah. <laughs> and it's just... um, totally. And I think that this also... I mean, I don't know if God at least has a sense of humor about, oh, you want more rain? Have some more rain. Um, There's another version of this story that's in the Mishnah, and that one explicitly mentions the Noah story, the flood. Um, Them saying that 
what you know what what happened to that big promise and whatnot and Ahoni's response is that um, no everything's fine it's not going to destroy certain rocks and certain things and that's how you know that God's not destroying the whole world it's just a lot of rain um, but they do specifically go there in the Mishnah again sometimes this is one of the differences between the Mishnah and the Gemara sometimes they'll tell the same story but differently so they both tell this story uh, this story is in the Mishnah it's just a lot shorter it's more condensed it's fewer details it's less of the dialogue um, the rabbis then sort of take it and unpack it further in that sense so other yeah go ahead um, I was just thinking that, like when you're praying over something, mm-hmm. maybe you can sort of just be full in your prayer. And when you're praying for gratitude, you can be full in your prayer. But maybe when you're praying for something, you need to be very specific. Mm. I mean, like be careful what you ask for type Th- thing. Like mm-hmm. not just oh I want it to rain that's in the general terms but <laughs> so I want that's what you want you're allowed to get wrong kind of rain yeah so I want to remind us again um, the rabbis believe that prayer could be dangerous what's what's that yeah prayer um, the rabbis have an understanding that prayer could be dangerous uh, I want to what's that powerful even dangerous. Um, I will just want to remind us again of that story of the oven of Achnai that ends with after Rabbi Eliezer is excommunicated by the rabbis, he is in such grief. He and his wife is trying to stop him every day from doing his Tachanun prayer. Something goes wrong where she mistimes the day or she was called, somebody knocked on the door and she went away when he did this prayer. He gets down to do this prayer from his place of anguish and his uh, enemy in the whole story, Rabban Gamliel, drops dead. And she sees him praying before she even hears that Rabban Gamliel is dead. She said, get up, you've killed Rabban Gamliel. And he says, how do you know? And she says, we have this tradition about prayer in my father's home. Um, that praying from that kind of injury, from that kind of grief, can wreak terrible havoc in the world, um, to paraphrase what she actually said. Um, so the rabbis seem to get that prayer is a powerful thing. Um, they do not take it lightly. I will put it like that. Other questions, thoughts before we... Yeah, go ahead. The line, and I don't know what it means, mm-hmm. but it's interesting that they mentioned that, that in Jerusalem, um, the Israelites were, were forced to ascend mm-hmm. the Temple Mount. So my understanding of the Temple Mount is that it's, it's a holy place, and to ascend to the Temple Mount, you're, you're basically getting closer to... To God, mm-hmm. so they're they're going up to seek shelter from something that they think is bad. So does it mean that that God was was giving them something good so they could be closer to Him, and that they are ungrateful for 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 this honor of? of Moving closer to him. So this is a great piece to unpack. So the other thing I would say is that the rabbis, they write at great length. If any of you were here for the Talmud for the session with my rabbi, Rabbi Steve Sager, talking about Elijah, um, the rabbis look, their society has largely been destroyed, and so they talk a lot about ruins and what it means to enter ruins of a holy place, and what you can and cannot say, and that you should not necessarily be praying in the ruins of a holy place, because, look, there were a lot of ruins around back then of a lot of places that were sacred to them. So they have this real 
ambivalence and sense of tension with being in a ruin. Um, all the more so for people who were Kohanim and there might have been bloodshed there. Um, or bodies there, even. So ascending the Temple Mount, yes, it would have been this, like, the holiest of the different ruins, but going up to that ruin, that's a, um, that's a tense thing. That's a very tense thing. But what, I mean, the sense I got mm -hmm. was more, um, physical. Yep. I mean, there's just all this rain, and yep. you're going to high ground. And that was and the, the famous... the point that they can, because there's just so much rain, and they don't want to drown. Right. That's absolutely another way to read this, but is that that mountains... was the noted point uh, in Jerusalem. There are mountains around the outside right, of it, say, yeah. but if everybody was in the center of Jerusalem and wanted to get up to the highest point, that would have been it. So you could look at it as refuge in that way. Yeah. Uh, two things. I don't yeah. think I've gotten there yet, but... You get to the bull park, can't talk about that? Yes. You get to the bull, so what, I'm just thinking that they're going to this the ruins of this temple mm -hmm. in which you would slaughter animals mm -hmm. to pray mm -hmm. God, so he's, is that acceptable in like, the ruins? Good question. Um, it's not clear that he's actually with all of them right now. Um, his. So let me see this piece real quick. This may be, uh, they may be telling this piece about the ruins in Jerusalem just to make the point. Because um, he would have been traveling all over the place. He was most famously associated with uh, um, the Galil. He lived in Galilee, um, which is where he's buried today. Um, so it's not clear that he was actually with all of them at that point. Um, unless we have anything else that's really pressing, why don't we move on to that paragraph and we can get into what is that sacrifice about. So does somebody want... Yeah, go ahead. The rabbis don't like us praying in the ruins. What about the Western Wall? <laughs> That's a great question. So, the rabbinic pieces about praying in ruins are a little bit different than praying at the Western Wall. Um, because, again, you're not directly in the ruins of something at that wall. That's the retaining wall of the outside of the temple. Now, two other things come into play. One, on top of where, on top of the Temple Mount, where the first and second temple stood where today is Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. That was the place in which, back when the temple stood, was the Holy of Holies. So that, and that was a place that only the high priest could enter once a year on Yom Kippur. Otherwise, nobody ever goes in there because it's forbidden and that's where God dwells amongst the people. So there is an idea that it's even dangerous to go up on the Temple Mount amongst a lot of religious people, authorities, because you wouldn't want to accidentally step into the Holy of Holies, even though it's up there as a mosque now. On the other hand, there are Jews who understand the Temple Mount from a much more radical, messianic sort of perspective and are hoping to get up there to potentially be part of the enterprise of building a third temple, which would involve... Um, such violent cataclysm of destruction of other religious sites that I, I mean, it's, it's unimaginable what kind of violence that would bring about. So the Temple Mount even to this day is held with some real tension in that sense. Ever since the 80s, there was actually a plot to blow up the Dome of the Rock um, that was uh, stopped by Israeli security services. Um, I think rightfully so. So there are some people who sort of have this messianic relationship to all of that, and it's a tense thing. And then the last thing I'll say about the Western Wall is there are people who think it's strange to be praying to a wall in that sense. The rabbis actually did have injunctions against praying to stones lest people think you were praying to an idol. So it's interesting that 
um, which rabbinic authorities are comfortable in which spaces. And they do come from very different perspectives about all of that, the temple mount, the wall, um, what's on top there. All of that is uh, held in different ways by different rabbinic authorities at different times. But that's just a word on that, but it's a great question. Um, let's launch into this paragraph. Do you, uh, who wants to read for us? Go ahead. He replied, I have it as a tradition that we cannot pray on account of excess good. However, bring me a bull so I can make a Thanksgiving offering. They brought him a bull for a Thanksgiving offering, and he laid his two hands on it and said, Master of the universe, your people Israel, whom you brought out of Egypt, cannot endure an excess of good nor an excess of punishment. When you were angry with them, they could not endure it. When you showered upon them an excess of good, they could not endure it. May it be your will that the rain may cease and that there be relief for the world. Immediately the wind began to blow, the clouds were dispersed and the sun shined, the people went out into the fields and gathered mushrooms and truffles for themselves. I know. It sounds delightful. Nathan, I know, not bad at all. Did you want to ask your question about the, the offering? I don't remember it. Okay, come, well, let me know if you remember it. Other what, questions what, about this what piece. What he's saying here is he's, he's not, he's saying I can't pray for God to stop an excess of good, but let me just give a, thank, a general kind of Observation. thank you. Observation. Just a general thank you, and by the way, too much good or too little good. It's not good. There's a parallel here to some of Moses' conversation, actually, with God at times like the golden calf, for instance, when the people do bad things. And Moses says things like, look, you didn't want to lead them all the way out of Egypt just to smite them in the wilderness. I mean, exactly. What would the other gods say about it? So um, there is this interesting evoking of Egypt uh, as this to try and tilt God through that kind of rhetoric. Um, The other thing I want to point out here. Look at what we're seeing. We're seeing a hybrid of these two systems. Go ahead. What's great is that it's gone from sacrificing the bull to placing the hands on the bull and blessing. Yeah, he probably shechted it. <laughs> Not to ruin it, but they don't say so. They don't say so, but they're not. The blessing comes first. We haven't gotten to well, the word offering. Yes. Connotes a certain, connotes a certain kind of when, outcome as opposed to, you know, just placing hands upon thy... Yeah. I'll so put it like that. The word offering is used other places in our... In our uh, so you mean the mushroom you probably go with the steak. Exactly. A yeah. beautiful mushroom steak, yeah. They don't get... To, uh, Bob is correct. They don't get to offer it and then take it back and have it be theirs. Um... That's sort of the uh, piece of it, but it is interesting. I know it sounded like such a beautiful step forward in terms of their relationship with sacrifice. I saw the word, but I thought the offering has changed to one of praising God. So, but it is. I, I think it is worth holding that we're seeing a very interesting synthesis of the prayer system and the sacrificial system um, that the rabbis are sort of in this in-between time right now actually of figuring all of this out but wasn't sacrifice only supposed to take place at the temple certain sacrifices there were other sacrifices that people made and other offerings that they no, brought they from did, their own but homes Torah when they were says it business. should all be done at the central place right from and the, here they're doing a thanksgiving offering theoretically and of course you said there's no temple yet there's no temple and so this is probably taking place, place in the Galilee 
Yeah, so is this even legitimate of him to do this in the first place? It doesn't sound from to me. No, it doesn't sound from to me either. And we have to recognize that, again, he, Choni Hama'agel, is doing this in the year 70 or so, or just afterward. Um, the rabbis don't come down on a lot of this other stuff about sacrifices and some of the prohibitions and some of the systems, um, removing it and banning it until the centuries after that. Since, so, since the temple has gone, from has evolved. <laughs> that too. And the temple we understand to have been destroyed in the year 70. So he is probably very, very close to the time of the destruction, um, more so than perhaps anyone else we have seen in our Talmud study so far. On which side of it, though? Closest to the destruction, closest to the beginnings of the rabbinic enterprise. He's one of the earliest. Um, so would you please explain the last paragraph? Who wants to read the last paragraph for us? I'll read the last paragraph. At this, Shimon ben Shetach sent him a message. He said, were it not that you were me, I would have excommunicated you. For if these years were like the years of famine in the time of Elijah, who held the keys to reign, wouldn't you profane the name of heaven? But what can I do to you who acts petulantly before the Blessed Holy One? And he grants your desire as a son who acts petulantly before his father, and he grants his desires. He says, Father, take me to bathe in the warm water. Wash me in cold water. Give me nuts, olives, peaches, and pomegranates. And he gives them to him. Of your scripture, of you, scripture says, let your father and mother be glad and let her who gave birth to you rejoice. Okay. What happened in that last paragraph? So, Shimon ben Shetach, he and Honi Hama'agel, okay, he and Honi Hama'agel are two of the most prominent leaders of the people at that time. So the fact that one of them is threatening to excommunicate the other one is significant. He's talking about, basically he's saying, what if God meant for there to be a drought right now? What if that was God's plan? Who are you, Choni, to go forcing God's hand with it? We see in the book of Kings, we see Elijah making this vow when there's wrongdoing and the people do wrong and sin and whatnot. He said, you all aren't going to get rains. He comes back and he is nasty and he vows that because of the wrongdoing, the people aren't going to get rains. So what Shimon ben Shetach is saying who are you to go and try and twist God's arm into this? He said, but what can I say about you who gets, yeah, because you're the spoiled child who gets all of this stuff. Now, in the Mishnah version of this story, he says, you know, a, a child who acts petulantly before a Kadosh Baruch Hu, the Blessed Holy One, as a son who acts petulantly before his father, and it stops there. The Gemara went and added in the pomegranates and the peaches and nuts and almonds and everything. They are really hammering the point home. Yeah. He's saying, you are just such a spoiled little creature. You go and whine to daddy, and daddy gives you everything you want and then some. And what you're asking is so unreasonable to begin with, and yet you get it. Wow. Your father and mother, they just must be so proud of you. You are just such a, they just treasure you so much. As it says in Proverbs, let your father and mother be glad for who you are, and let she who gave birth to you rejoice. How wonderful it is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu thinks so highly of you. And to, and to, and to think for the future, Shimon ben He's, it's, that's a good question. Is he speaking for himself or for the people? Um, it's an excellent question. What's that? That's something that will come. 
Yes. Uh, to what extent? I mean, he, again, I think holding what Linda said about this, looking at the balances of power here are important. He sees somebody who is using this circle business to perhaps force the will of heaven. That could be a really dangerous thing. But he also may be a spokesperson for some greater authority. That's true, too. Then the question is, to what extent could he be speaking the will of God? Um, I'm not talking. You're not talking about the will of God. Are you talking about the Sanhedrin? Uh, so in that way, we're seeing some of the same tension we saw in that oven of Achnai, that story about the one guy, uh, Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkanos, pulling all of his magic tricks, and yet the will of the rabbinic court was all against him. Because I'm a fast reader, I'll just say state. Stay tuned. He. This is not the. All kinds of interesting yes. stuff. Part two takes a, goes in a very different direction. Go ahead, Jill. But in a very simplistic way, mm-hmm. without all the drama, couldn't it just be? Oh, I get it. We're in a famine. I'm close to God. Please, God, let there be rain. Not too much rain, a little rain, a little more rain, not too much rain. Thank you so much. A little shuffle here and there. (laughs) And he prayed for rain, and it came, and everybody was happy. Like... So you're saying, why does Shimon Shimon Ben Shetach have it out for him? Yeah. He didn't seem petulant. He didn't seem petulant. Yeah, he seemed like he was just... Trying to do the right thing. And then, Made a mistake trying to adjust the prayer, get, it, get it right. Also, in that second paragraph, the last line, mm-hmm. I don't remember your name, I'm sorry, but you said that he was even whining, oh, it's not for this that I pray. Yeah. I'm thinking, he's saying, no, that's not what I meant. Mm-hmm. I'm just praying for the rain to fill. Like, I'm just, like... Very simplistic. So, if you read it that way, that's a totally valid reading to have with it. If you read it that way, then you have to read Shimon ben Shetach a little differently. You then it then invites you into a reading in which this is a whatever's going on with Choni Ma'agel poses a political challenge to him, and he sees this guy who maybe uh, in a situation to challenge him or his authority or his leadership. And so he may be doing, he may be threatening to excommunicate Choni Hama'agel and talking about him as a petulant child out of a place of political threat. Um, is threatening to... Shimon ben Shetach. Yeah. That, I would suggest that if you read Choni Hama'agel as doing all of this in good faith and being this lovely guy who's just fine-tuning what he's asking for for the people, then Shimon ben Shetach looks very different. Okay, what is the answer? There isn't. There isn't. isn't. This is part of... What do I think? I think yes. I think that it's impossible. I think that they're worried about... Um, some of the power that Choni Hama'agel is using and this whole circle business. I happen to not think that it's Choni the roofer. I think that this circle stuff that he's doing is a very powerful way of affecting the world around him, and they're concerned about that. And that's a theme we do see repeatedly in Talmud, is rabbis who are very powerful and have certain kinds of connection to God and to the natural world and are able to conjure certain things, 
and there's a lot of ambivalence about it and discomfort about it. So, yeah, and I also think that the political is never that far away for them, that those conversations and who is fit to lead the people and their disputes and their arguments, that's all there too. So I would say yes, I think that it's entirely possible to read it both ways, and it's fruitful. It is worth reading it both ways because reading it both ways shows you their worldview, and it shows you what they're concerned about, and it shows you what they're scared of, and it shows you um, how it was that they're trying to create community and have relationship with one another and live with one another. How do they want to try and innovate a new Jewish future out of the destruction, the cataclysm, of the destruction of the temples? Um, and it shows you their struggles and their relationship to God and what's holy in their lives. Um, this is why it's fruitful to read these texts from so many different ways and to challenge our own movie versions and the movie versions of one another here is because by opening it in different ways, uh, you really do get to dwell with them in this text. Um, as they're fond of saying that they're ein mukdam um Torah, and they see it in this place too. There's no such thing as early or late. Um, and in that way, they all go and have arguments with one another, even when we know that they historically didn't overlap. One of them missed the other one by 300 years, and yet they're still their part of the conversation. Um, these different readings in that way are an invitation to us to join that conversation with them. Um, go ahead, and then I'm going to close. I have two thoughts on this. Sure. One is, I mean, the, the idea of the circle, were they afraid that the circle was going to close them out? And it's possible. Okay, that's, that's one thing. The other is, are you talking about the conversations, like 300 years apart? And what, mm -hmm. what about, I always ask this question, if, why isn't, if it's not, the conversation still going on? I, so that's a great question. Why do we say that the Talmud is redacted? Why aren't we actually part of it, and why isn't it continuing? Um, it is. We're not writing it in the same way, but we have layer after layer after layer of commentary over this, of people reading themselves into it. Remember what I said about the uh, 60th of, the, of milk in your meat stew? That would not pass in a kosher kitchen in an orthodox industrial you know, kosher kitchen, that would be unacceptable. And that's because subsequent generations and centuries of rabbis, of Jewish thinkers, of people have read themselves into the conversation. A lot of the, it's believed by a lot of scholarship that some of the stricture in and around kashrut, that it became a little bit more narrowly defined, was because the rabbis were off with their own authorities having their own conversation, and their wives, women, were the ones who were actually running the homes. And so their customs and their traditions reflect what they were doing more than the rabbinic iron will of making it one way or the other. And so that conversation, that evolution, the way in which these things have all unfolded over times, just because we say that the Talmud is redacted, I don't think means that we're not part of the conversation and it's still going on. So if you buy a contemporary volume of Talmud, you'll see all of the other little things added in. There's a... Um, uh, a little section that tells you what the actual contemporary halakha is around it because contemporary rabbis know that halakha, Jewish law, is not what it just says in the Talmud. You can see it's, exactly, it evolves, it changes. You can watch its trajectory through the Talmud, through legal codes up into our time, but they understand that um, that this conversation is still going on in this way. Uh, and all of these different readings, the fact that it is ambiguous and they do play fast and loose with their pronouns, all of that 
I want to argue, in addition to making us nuts at time, from time to time and trying to understand it, is also part of that invitation to read ourselves into it, to join in the conversation with the text. So I want to conclude with one last piece about prayer. The rabbis are very interested. I, at, I'm, we're already over time, so out of respect for everyone's time, I want to go ahead and wrap up. Um, but I'm happy to talk afterward. So... The rabbis, of course, they're figuring out what prayer is, and they're totally into all the different pieces of what prayer is and who prays and whatever. And so they ask the question, well, what does God pray? Because, of course, they feel like, well, if they're praying, then, of course, God must be praying, too. Everybody is praying as part of this endeavor. So they ask the question, what does God pray? And the answer that they give is that God prays that God's mercy will outweigh God's justice. In all of these pieces, and we talk about God having different decisions, the way in which prayer impacts the divine and impacts our lives and our world, um, they have this idea that God is there praying alongside of us too, that God is actually part of this whole endeavor of prayer with us, um, that mercy should outweigh justice in that divine calculus. Uh, I think it's a beautiful illustration that shows sort of their worldview and their understanding of their relationship with God and with prayer. So with that, I want to thank you all for coming. Tell you it's a pleasure learning together with you all. And I will look forward to reading Choni Hama'agel Part 2 next month. Have a good evening.